There were 200 academy students gathered three weeks ago now, a, a choir festival, about 12 academies represented there. They had a guest clinician, and they did everything they had been asked. They rehearsed ahead of time. They came knowing the repertoire of six songs, and they spent three days together, and they executed these songs perfectly. They, they did it in the morning worship service at 11 a.m., and then again in an afternoon concert at 4 in the afternoon. It was, I've been told, one of the best academy choral festivals we've ever had in our union just three weeks ago. When they finished their last song and the benediction was offered, the pianist began what we would say a little background music for everyone to file out. But instead of filing out, someone from the choir began to hum along with what the pianist was playing. And a few of the kids in the choir were hush-hushing this person. We're supposed to leave. But then another voice and, and another voice until several were humming, until several soon were then just singing full out the words of this song and, and unrestrained singing. And someone said to the guest clinician in the front row, what is happening right now? He said, I don't have a clue. Totally unrehearsed, unscripted, spontaneous. Ask the kids, what was happening right there? They will tell you, it was just too good. We, we weren't done singing. We wanted to sing a little bit more. And they did it with their instructor sitting in the front pew. That was the scene last week in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. It's just too good to be true. We want to sing a little bit more gathered around the throne in these concentric circles singing, holy, holy, holy. No, we have to sing it again. It, it was unscripted. It was spontaneous. One author calls these songs of impossibility because of the impossible things God has done. We have to sing. That was last week. It's an interlude in the book of Revelation. And there are several of these interludes of worship. And if, if last week was an interlude of worship, today is chaos. And it happens that quick. Between last week and this week, as quickly as Osama, Barack Osama has turned the political conversation upside down in our country, as quickly as we have a World Series championship team this morning, as quickly as we were celebrating the three-year anniversary of what was called the Old Fire on Wednesday, and we looked down the freeway to see a new one called the Esperanza Fire 40,000 acres later, five deaths late, four deaths later, a half a million dollar reward. As quickly as the Santa Ana winds change, it was an interlude of worship last week in Revelation, and this week it is total chaos. What we won't read that happened in between chapter 5 and where we'll end up today in chapter 11, if you go home and read, you will see it looks like literally all hell breaks loose. As one resident said, interviewed in Idlewild yesterday, it was as if the devil came and opened his mouth and blew fire at us. Did you hear that? That is what happens in Revelation since last week. The seals have been torn open. The horsemen have announced battles from within and without. There is famine and pestilence. There's economic crisis. There is death. 
announced with this writer called Hades. And that's not all. Earthquake, this black sun, a blood-colored moon, stars dropping out of the heavens, the, the skies completely disappearing. People hiding in caves, begging for the rocks to crush them so they'll survive this terrible wrath of the Lord. The people of God are made secure, by the way, with a ceiling. And there's another interlude of worship in this chaos, but just for a moment. And then the author goes back, as if to say it all over again, as if we didn't hear those two chapters. Here it comes again, more unsealing, more chaos with the blowing of the trumpet. There's hail and fire, and the word blood is used so many times in, in these two chapters. Again and again, locusts who eat people, two million riders in Calvary are released with these beastly horses who eat people, and it's clear this is is not only the revelation of Jesus Christ, as we have been saying, this is the revelation of evil. And this is also why many of us don't read the book. It's why many of us close it up. It was a long time ago that I wandered onto our oldest daughter. Almost before we knew she could even read, we stumbled upon her one Sabbath with a Bible open on her lap, and she was reading Revelation. And in my unchecked reaction, I said, what, what are you doing? As if she had something illegal in her possession. I'm reading. But what are you reading? I, I, I'm reading the Bible. But what? These are just intelligent questions. But why? <laughs> she looks at me. <laughs> because I like it, Mommy. You're reading Revelation. I know I love it. Don't you love it too? No, I don't. I don't want her reading it. I wanted to grab the Bible out of her hand. And, and perhaps my reaction, and maybe you've had the same one over the years, perhaps we have this, rev, re, this reaction because we have not read it completely. We've not done justice to the story there. Perhaps we have stopped with the reading that says the revelation of evil is being unleashed upon the world. Perhaps we've forgotten that the evil does not go unchecked in this book. The revelation of Jesus Christ. There is fear, but what we've tried to make clear the last four weeks is the fear is not fear of our God. There is real fear because there is real evil, but no one needs to be afraid of God. And for that reason, a couple of times we have read together this affirmation, and I'm going to invite you to read with me this morning the part marked for you. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which came from God. Jesus says, do not be afraid. We will not be afraid of our God. There is real evil, however, that does frighten us. Evil that appears to be free, roaming the earth in these chapters that that we've skipped between last week and, and this Sabbath. And, and please, go home and read them, because you read, people do die. The invitation that I've also given as we've done these four weeks together is to step back as readers, to step back as a community, to step back as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, to step back from the story, and instead of with binoculars, instead of with a microscope, with the book up here, instead of literally trying to identify and define and label and figure out what all these symbols mean, that we take a step back and we watch this 
an amazing scope of the drama that John lays out in the sky. It is when we step back, I believe, we might see there's not as much to be afraid of. So we step back this morning again, and we'll meet two witnesses. Two witnesses, and we'll have to think more broadly about the word witness and testimony and and those kind of, we think of those as kind of pious, piastic terms, telling the story of Jesus, you know, telling what God has done for me. But when we read witness and martyr in Revelation 11, we need to think more broadly of a very risky situation of refusing to keep silent about the goodness of God. That's what we come across in Revelation chapter 11. We'll read the whole chapter together, so, so or, sit still. <laughs> I know this feels like a lot of verses right in a row. It, it, uh, it reads rather quickly because it's so amazing. 11 verse 1. I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and I was told, go out and measure the temple of God and the altar and, and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court... Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men, these witnesses, have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. They have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Verse 7, now when they have finished their testimony, the beast comes up from the abyss, will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every tribe, people, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them, and they will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. They had heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here, come up here. And they went. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. The second woe has passed, and the third woe is coming soon. Some thoughts about this vision where we meet the two witnesses, also called martyrs, those who will who those who refuse to be silent about the goodness of their God. First, the numbers in the passage, 1260 and 42 and three and a half, and it's it's several ways of saying about the same thing, about the same time period. And, And sometimes 42 would be used for those who are not the faithful and maybe 1260 for the faithful ones, but but we shouldn't get caught in the numbers of the passage. Remember, take a step back. Take a, take a step back from the numbers here. The important thing, and it's been building in biblical tradition now, the important thing 
about these numbers is to say, it won't be long now. 1260 days. You're you're near the end. Just hold on. That's what the numbers say. The numbers also say something else. You see where the temple is measured on the inside but not on the outside? That is also to say there is a measured place of all places inside your own sanctuary where you worship and you are safe there. It, It is measured off from evil. Outside these walls where your witness will be, you're not protected. You are secure, but you, you may die. And you are secure inside this measured-off place, inside the temple. Your worship is safe. Your witness, well, you may suffer. Uh, but there is no question in your suffering that you've been measured off in the sanctuary and you belong to God. There is security there in that measuring off. The imagery that we read about besides the holy place and the temple, the lampstands and the olive trees, you know, from the Old Testament, even from the book of Revelation, the lampstands are the seven churches at the beginning of the letter. The olive trees have been a healthy, healthy image in the Old Testament representing the people of God, where the people of God gather or where they are assembled. And it's always interesting when you start studying these symbolic readings, the things that happen in the world, you know, Uh, in parallel tracks, we lost some branches from an olive tree on the property this week. They called me Thursday morning and said part of one of the trees out front here just fell off. Olive trees. I don't know who planted them. I think we we have more than a dozen on the property. McAnally's planted them? Well, someone knew what the olive tree represents. On the outside, driving by, when you see those olive trees you know the people of God gather here. The church gathers here. The same for the lampstands. And all of this is is recorded in Zechariah. And and also we see two witnesses there, a priest and a king. and, and, And it is all to say the power of God gets channeled somehow where where these things are gathered. The power of God. The two witnesses themselves remind people of Moses and Elijah. These are the two for whom the nation Israel has been waiting because tradition has it that they need to come back to the earth before this end will happen. And so these two witnesses are often identified with Moses and Elijah representing the entire people of God. What is unique about these two martyrs is that they are given power. If you, if you heard there what we read, they are given this divine power. What was channeled, what used to be channeled through the temple and, and through the prophets and even through the people of God is now channeled into these witnesses. They have power, according to the text, to hold back the sky. They have power to, to unleash any plague they want on the people, reminding us that there was a Pharaoh once that had that kind of power for the Hebrew slaves. These two witnesses are empowered. It is so clear. And that is new because before the power has come from God, when Elijah calls for help, it's fire from heaven that God sends. But now the witnesses have the power themselves. When they open their mouths, the text says it's like the fire comes straight out of them. They are powerful. What is most amazing is the way they use their power. The text tells us that 
These are clothed in sackcloth. These two witnesses, did you see that in there? They wear garments of wailing, garments of mourning. They wear funeral garments, these two. They have power to absolutely turn, turn the world upside down, but they're clothed like they're going to a funeral. And we remember last week the nature of the conquering kingdom we talked about when when they asked for a lion and they ended up with a lamb seated on the throne. Remember that we said that lamb, that lamb standing, having been wounded, redefines what a conquering kingdom looked like. And here we see two witnesses who are testifying to the same thing. They wear sackcloth. They wear mourning attire. They have all power available but they don't use it. They don't use it. All they have are their words. And the conquering kingdom, again, not defined by violence, not defined by consumption, not defined by arrogance, not defined by minimizing others or elevating self, this conquering kingdom, it becomes its own witness in the book of Revelation. What are they supposed to talk about? These faithful witnesses, these two martyrs, you notice they don't get any instruction. They're just given power and they're told to go prophesy, which is two words, to speak for God. They get no more instructions than that. Just go and speak for God. We don't know the content of what they say. We don't know how they go about it. We're just told they roam the earth and do it. We don't know... You know, today, from where we stand, and we think about giving our testimony and speaking for God and not restraining that which God has done for us, how is it you put that into words and what do you say? And most of us think we need to have these 28 fundamentals ironed out so we can speak intelligently and and actually testify to people about our church and this truth that we love. And, And here we see two witnesses who walk out without any of that. Oh, they have the power to turn the world upside down, but they only use... Their words, these two faithful ones. What do they say? What do they do? There are some times when instructions are really helpful, and I'm thinking if I was one of these witnesses, tell me what to say. Tell me what you want me to do when I go out. I would like a guide now. And and we do that in the church. We teach elders how to give Bible studies. We teach... instructions for all sorts of things in the church. I read yesterday online instructions for how to adjust to the new time change tomorrow. I'm thinking you just sleep an extra hour. But there's a list of instructions you could follow. I think of Hippocrates who needs to teach young budding scientists about the human body and develops this anatomical atlas. He's never cut a body open and looked inside. And some have said it's a little hypocritical. What, how do you teach? What, where are the instructions? Let me see. Ah, but we learn from the passage, everything you need to know is already inside of you. You have it here in your words. If you've seen this God, and you have is the assumption in Revelation 11, then you have everything you need right now. You don't need any more instructions. You don't need God to arrange anything else for you. You've got all the power you need in your own God story nestled inside of you. The text says they go out and they speak. I think you need the eyesight of faith 
to catch what John writes next. I think if you read this text from outside Christianity, from outside the eyes of faith, you wouldn't be able to catch it. But with the eyesight of faith, we read this, that they did testify and they did die. And it looks from the outside like, like they've lost, like the beast who we just heard about. We haven't read of the beast until chapter 11. Here the beast emerges and, and he eats the witnesses and it's over. From the outside, it looks like all the worldly powers are still winning. But from the inside, we just met this beast. But what happens? These two witnesses get called. The invitation was after they died and they're resuscitated, the invitation is, come up here. You know who else got that invitation at the beginning? In chapter 4, when John was talking to the earthly churches, and then the invitation, come up here and see what's going on. Now here are the two witnesses, get the same invitation, come up here. You don't go around your tribulation to come up here. You go absolutely straight on through it with this power from above, with this God story inside of you. And then this invitation comes, come up here and see. Come up here. It must be the invitation of a lifetime to two martyrs. Those were the words we were waiting for. We didn't know the beast was going to eat us. Come up here. That's where the faithful go. Come up here. The invitation of a lifetime, like a, like a little child waiting to get into the teenage treehouse. Come up here. Like a rock climber being beckoned by half dome. Come up here. Like a spiritual disciple who can see the monastery on the top. Come up here. These two faithful witnesses get the invitation of a lifetime. Come up here. And when they go... The text said in 11.15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of our Lord, which is not the title of a new territory, it's not a noun, it is better translated, the king is kinging now. John announces, it's like he went to chapter 21 and pulled it back into chapter 11. The king is kinging right now. But there's more. We give thanks in verse 17 to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was, because you've taken your great power and you've begun to reign. Well, where's the third description of this God? The one who was and is and is to come. Isn't that how we usually read of God in Revelation? But already right here in chapter 11, John says, no, no, the one who is and was, because the king is now kinging. And when the king is kinging, The witnesses have something to talk about. That's what they say. The king is kinging. The king is kinging. You are a witness. You are the prophetic voice. Call after call, scene after scene in the book of Revelation. And it is not over. It starts at 4, goes all the way to 19. There will be wake-up call after wake-up call, as we said in week 1. And does anybody repent? We've just gone through all these woes. The trumpets have blasted. Do you read that anyone has repented? In fact, you see, many have died from the plagues. And the text says those who haven't died have not repented. But when the king is kinging and the two witnesses begin to talk about this king, the text says in verse 13, 7,000 were killed in an earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. 
The first part of that is really intriguing to me, and we don't have time to talk about it this morning. Only 7,000 people die, folks. That is worth a whole sermon series. The inhabitants of the earth and only 7,000 die. But this morning, what we're talking about is the last part, and the survivors, all those who were surviving, did what? They repented. It is the first time and the only time we see that people made a decision Not when the heavens are raining fire and hail, not when blood-like things and locusts eat and consume, but when just two simple witnesses walk out and say, by the way, the king is kinging. Did you know that? The king is kinging. And the text says, many people gave glory to God and they repented. It is in the tradition of all the great prophets and it is for us today in this church, in case you were taught that the gift of prophecy was entirely wrapped up in Ellen White, were she to stand beside me this morning, which would be an amazing conversation, by the way, were she to stand here, she would say to us, you are the gift of prophecy also. You are in line with Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Paul and all the others and Jesus and, and Ellen. And, and here we are as the Adventist church. The gift of prophecy means we keep saying, the king is kinging. And we say it any way we can. Whatever comes out of our mouth, as long as we pay attention to the conquering king who says we don't use violence We don't use subversion. We don't power over. We don't minimize. We're not arrogant because we realize in the little scroll that's opened, all of us need to repent. And that's how you talk about a a king who is kinging. I don't know what your witness will be. We are with glee watching the academy students one Friday a month as they've started a new project The trailer park project doesn't really have a name yet, but yesterday was the second Friday of this project. They don't go out with Bible studies in their hands. They just picked one trailer park under the direction of Judy Yakish in an area where we have 50 of them. We've just picked one, Villa Calamesa, the other side of the freeway, and have isolated residents who, low-income residents, single residents, single mothers, handicapped elderly people who can't get out, people who have fallen out of compliance and who are at risk of losing the only home they have. It doesn't matter if it doesn't look glamorous to you and I. This is their life. And they're being written up with citations and, and they're at risk with the city. And so a group of students go out one Friday per month. Last month, the 12th graders. Yesterday, the 11th graders. Next month, the 10th graders. And then the 9th graders. And then we'll start the rotation again. And don't be surprised if we come to you and say, do you want to come and join us? Because we want to be a witness over there and say, by the way, the king is kinging and this is what it looks like. The king is kinging in these trailer parks where there are more drugs and more at-risk people in Yukaipa. What a wonderful opportunity. All you have to go out with is these words in your mouth and these hands. And and the people said yesterday to Judy, let us pay you for what you've done. We want to pay you. And she said, no, you're not going to pay us. No. Oh, but you've come two times in a row now. We we should write you a check. She said, you do not write us a check. A woman said to me last month, I haven't been able to breathe for 10 years. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. 
what this group of students did for me this morning gives me more hope than I've had in 10 years. That's the witness. That's what a prophetic remnant does. However it comes out of you. Watches the drama team gives you an example of three other witnesses, martyrs, who are coming up to heaven. Number one, be definite. Many people are afraid to decide something because they may be wrong. Don't let this fear slow you down. It's difficult to steer a parked automobile. So get it moving. Number two, have a burning desire. He will give thee the desires of thine heart. So set your desire on him. Be consumed with a desire to achieve his purposes. Let me ask you, Christian leaders, with the energy of such Holy Spirit desire, what is it that you really long for? Number three, have unwavering courage. Be strong and of good courage. No follower wishes to be dominated by a leader who lacks confidence and courage. This Christ-centered courage must conquer fears. And finally, have definite plans. Plans must be sound. Think. Do not guess. Write out your plans. Cut your program into workable units so others can carry them out. They say she was a woman of vision, one who wasn't afraid to trust God no matter how difficult the circumstances. As a child, doctors told her mother that she would be blind by the age of 30, but Mears was convinced God had a purpose for her life. Therefore, she read and studied all she could in case her eyesight failed. After college, she accepted both the challenge of teaching high school chemistry and leading out in a Sunday school class at her church. It wasn't long until she discovered the Sunday school material being taught wasn't in keeping with her convictions. <laughs> One lesson posed that the Apostle Paul survived the shipwreck at Malta because he had eaten carrots and was strong. This shocked Mears, for she knew it was the hand of God that saved Paul and the others. The material was immediately returned to the publisher with an explanation stating that she could not use any lesson that denied the miraculous in Scripture. In that day, sufficient Sunday school literature was limited. Mears was left with but one option, to write the lessons herself. In the meantime, Mears was searching for a retreat area where she could take her students. If you place people in an atmosphere where they feel close to God and then challenge them with his word, they will make decisions. A privately owned resort in the San Bernardino Mountains was available, but the price was too high. For a moment, the dream appeared impossible. Come, come, my friends. We need to pray about this. And we need to dream big and trust God for his blessing at the right time. 
After a miraculous intervention, Forest Home, valued at $350,000, was purchased in 1938 for the unheard price of $30,000. Billy Graham once said of her, I doubt if any other woman outside my wife and mother has had such a marked influence on my life. She is certainly one of the greatest Christians I have ever known. Listen, God has given me a definite plan and a burning desire. It is called Campus Crusades for Christ. We will reach every college and university, changing the world. And we will reach all the students. Look, I have a plan. It is called the Four Spiritual Laws. Law 1, God loves you, and he has a definite plan for your life. Bill Bright's ministry began in Southern California, where he set up a candy business in 1944. His striking resemblance to the actor Clark Gable helped him break into the Hollywood social scene. But early on, he met some Christians who encouraged him to commit his life to Jesus. Then, in the solitude of my home, I was driven to my knees. And in the most sacred moment, I gave my life to him. Over the last 50 years, Bill Bright has mobilized an army charged with taking the gospel to every corner of the globe. As the world's largest Christian ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ serves people in more than 190 countries. I am convinced that every follower of Christ must be aggressively, not offensively, but aggressively spreading God's love to all who will listen. This young man's name is Josh McDowell. McDowell struggled with low self-esteem in his youth as his father was an alcoholic and abusive. He initially intended to pursue legal studies and a political career. I was probably the most unpopular student with the teachers at the first college I went to in Michigan. He claims that as an atheist at college, he decided to prepare a paper that would examine the historical evidence of the Christian faith in order, in order to disprove it. However, he converted to Christianity after, as he says, he found evidence for it, not against it. He became a traveling representative for Campus Crusade for Christ and wrote two bestsellers. By 1972, this man had traveled to more than 500 universities in 52 countries and witnessed to more than 3.5 million students and faculty. But, I, but what I want him to tell you about is how he has been a witness to his own father. The person I hated the most was my father. I despised him. To me, he was a town alcoholic. But about five months after I made the decision for Jesus, a love from God through Jesus enveloped my life, and it turned my hatred upside down. And for the first time, I was able to look at my father directly in his eyes and say, Dad, I love you. And from the things in my past, and obviously the things in his past, it really shook him up. I remember the first time that he came to my room. He said, son, how can you love a father like me? And as I looked at him, I, I told him, 
Dad, six months ago, I despised you. But through this relationship with Jesus, I've been able to find the love and the ability to accept not just you, but others for who they are. And 45 minutes later, the greatest thrill of my life happened. My father told me, Son, if God can do in my life what I've seen him do in yours, then I want to give him that opportunity. And for the first time, we prayed together. It was like someone reached in and flipped a switch. My father was glowing. Usually, changes like that happen in months or even years, but for him, it was instant. He never touched alcohol again after that. That is the power of God. Henrietta Mears, Bill Bright, Josh McDowell, each one responding to the Spirit of God. They would probably be the first to say it's not been an easy life, but being faithful to God rarely is. Come on up here, each one will someday hear, and with these witnesses will come many, many, many more. Amen and amen. It is our prayer, God. It is our prayer to hear that same invitation, come on up here. But we don't want to come without the many, many more. So make us faithful martyrs, witnesses, risky business, unleashed in this world for your power, for your glory. Amen.